Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa, rise and shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet, Channel 902. I'm Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa lauded for its response to allegations of sexual abuse leveled against its soldiers, and Japan pledges to assist Zimbabwe feed millions of villagers facing food shortage. In economics, Nigerian oil output down 40% due to militant attacks on facilities and in sports news, several Moroccan athletes arrested on suspicion of doping. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Chadian officials say they've opened an investigation into the disappearance of more than 20 soldiers in the days before and after the April 10 presidential election. Prosecutors announced the probe after calls for action from rights groups and, more recently, France. The soldiers went missing as President Idris Deby was re-elected for a fifth term after 26 years of rule. Troops voted a day ahead of the poll. Some news reports in Chad have put the number of missing members of the Defence and Security Forces as high as 60. Ugandan opposition leader Kizebisaje's lawyer says he has been transferred to the country's only maximum security prison in the capital, Kampala. The transfer followed Besaje's appearance before a court in the country's remote northeastern region. He was last Friday charged with treason for unlawfully declaring himself winner of the country's disputed February 18 presidential election and for swearing himself in as president-elect. He has rejected the results of the polls which gave incumbent President Yoweri Museveni over 60% of the votes, citing widespread vote rigging, intimidation by security services and other irregularities. The South African National Defence Force has been lauded for its response to allegations of sexual abuse against its members serving as UN peacekeepers. In an update on cases of sexual misconduct by UN staff around the world, the world body revealed 44 new cases, of which 29 were reported in the Central African Republic and 7 in the Democratic Republic of Congo. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujaric says South Africa's decision to conduct on-site court martials in the DRC should be by other countries. A number of member states uh, have acted quickly in uh, giving hard jail time uh, to soldiers who have been found guilty. Uh, one, uh, South Africa has also announced that they will be conducted, uh, conducting a um, uh, court-martial in situ in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and I think that's a hugely important step because that will give uh, the victims and the impacted community uh, access uh, to justice. As far as I can recall, as far as I know, I mean, in recent times, it is it is the first. I mean, in, in a few years, we say until, you know, I, I, let me check. But my understanding is that it is the first. South Africa's ruling ANC has strongly condemned the latest disruption of parliament, which led to opposition EFF MPs being ejected from the National Assembly. The EFF became rowdy before President Jacob Zuma started answering parliamentary questions. They were involved in brawls of security staff outside the chamber and damaged parliamentary property. ANC caucus spokesperson Muloto Mutapo says they hope parliament will lay criminal charges against the EFF for vandalism. We are completely disgusted by the conduct of the EFF members of parliament, the temerity to engage in fist fight and to fight the security uh, staff of parliament for merely doing their job, for their attempt to render the sitting of today dysfunctional and attempt to collapse it. The malicious damage to property when they were being taken out of parliament, that is, those are the sins that uh, are unprecedented, never seen. 
And finally, the chairperson of the African Union Commission, Nkosazana Tlamini Zuma, is leading a delegation of African leaders for the first ever Africa-Italy ministerial conference starting in Rome today. The conference will allow the heads of delegation from Africa and Italy to discuss common challenges such as the fight against violent extremism, managing migration flows and sustainable development. The conference, which is expected to take place every two years, will set the frame for a high-level dialogue with African partners, similar to the existing model Italy has developed with the Latin American countries. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and it's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 902. A South African National Defence Force has been lauded for its response to allegations of sexual exploitation and abuse levelled against its members serving as UN peacekeepers. In a periodic update on cases of sexual misconduct by UN personnel around the world, the world body has revealed 44 new cases against in 2016, among which 29 were reported in the Central African Republic and seven in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which includes three cases against South African troops serving there. The UN has indicated that South Africa's decision to conduct on-site court martials in the DRC against accused troops represents best practice for other troop contributing countries to emulate. Show and Brass Peace reports. While the numbers keep going up, the primary responsibility for investigating and prosecuting perpetrators rests with troop contributing countries. And while the majority of the investigations against UN personnel are ongoing, there was praise for the SANDF's response in the DRC as the Secretary-General spokesperson Stefan Dujeric explained. A number of member states uh, have acted quickly in uh, giving hard jail time uh, to soldiers who have been found guilty. Uh, one, uh, South Africa has also announced that they will be conducted, uh, conducting a, um, a uh, court-martial in situ in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and I think that's a hugely important step because that will give uh, the victims and the impacted community uh, access uh, to justice. There are three cases against SANDF members pending for 2016. The UN believes on-site court-martials carried out by South Africa will allow victims and affected communities in the DRC to see justice at work. As far as I can recall, as far as I know, I mean, in recent times, it is, um, it is the first. I mean, in, in a few years, should we say, until, you know, I, I, let me check. But my understanding is that it is the first. It is obviously something we uh, welcome very much because, as you mentioned, it is something the Secretary General has been calling for as part of ensuring that victims have access to justice. Of the 69 allegations recorded in 2015, investigations have been concluded in 26 instances. According to the UN, 12 of those allegations have been substantiated against military, police and one civilian personnel member. The UN says the civilian staff member has been dismissed from service, while military and police personnel were repatriated on disciplinary grounds for sanction by their national jurisdictions while the majority of allegations have surfaced in the Central African Republic. For uh, 2015, for 22 of the allegations were recorded in MINUSCA in 2015. Seven investigations have been concluded. Three allegations were substantiated, uh, two against the military, once against police. Four were unsubstantiated. Fourteen investigations are pending completion. And one matter, matter was marked uh, for information indicating that there was not sufficient information to conduct an investigation. A UN-established trust fund to support victims of abuse has received its first pledge in the amount of $125,000 made by Norway. I'm Sherwin Bryspees in New York. 
South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says he did not lie to Parliament and the nation when he said he had a loan on his Ngandla home in the Guazul-Natal province. He was replying to questions in the National Assembly. Yesterday, DA leader Musi Maimani claimed the president had misled the nation after the public protector and the constitutional court ruled his family had unduly benefited from non-security upgrades at his residence. Presidential correspondent in Debomukobo has more. Honorable Shibambu. What's your problem? Honorable Malema. Honorable what Vincent. did I do? Tell me my problem. Honorable Matias. Don't address me as a group. Honorable Paulson. What did I do? was again erupted in Parliament during President Jacob Zuma's oral reply. EFFMPs refused to allow the President to address Parliament, saying he was not a legitimate leader after the public protect and the constitutional court ruled that he violated the Constitution. And after the EFFMPs were ejected from Parliament, the President then took to the podium. President Zuma's Nkandla home was again under the spotlight. DA leader Musima Imane asked if the President has misled Parliament when he said he had a bond to fund the renovations at his home. On the 15th of November 2012, you said, and I'd like to quote, My residence in Nkandla has been paid for by the Zuma family. All the buildings and every room we use in that residence were built by ourselves as a family and not by government. It's become very clear that you did not pay for the upgrades in your home. So it's either the Constitutional Court and the Public Protector are lying to the people of South Africa, or you are in fact lying to the people of South Africa. President Zuma rejected the claim. He accused the opposition of playing to the gallery, saying he had a point and the family started to work on the property long before he became president of the country. He says it was only then that government started with its security upgrades. Firstly, I must say I did not lie. I said the family built our home, not government. By the time I became the president, the buildings were up. Concord has not said I lied when I said the family built the house. The public protector has not said so. Public protector says what government provided as security features in my homestead, the family indirectly and myself benefited. And there must be reasonable payment for it. On the violence that played out in parliament, UTM's emergency filter and a call for order and dignity to be restored to the house. South Africans in their millions across the country look to this house for leadership. And it is all good and well for us to condemn the elements of disagreement that we have every now and again as it materialized earlier on. But we must take that a step further beyond condemnation. What is it that we need to do to find each other in this house? So that we sing from the same hymn sheet. Because one must be worried about what is going on in this house. Whether it's right or wrong politically, but what message does it send to the people of South Africa? And President Zuma agrees, saying instead of fighting and insulting each other, parliamentarians need to work together to improve the living conditions of ordinary South Africans. I agree with the honorable member that uh, we need to do more as this house, which is like the mirror to our people. And they look forward to this house to give leadership in the nation building, in making of the laws, in discussing the challenges of the country, in helping that we build this country. It is unfortunate that uh, we end up with some problems of how do we handle this. And I think, as you referred to the earlier activities, which do not in any way help us. On government efforts to grow the economy and create jobs, the president says Operation Pakisa has managed to create over 4,000 jobs since its inception. The ocean economy component of Operation Pakisa has unlocked 17 billion rand in both public sector and private sector investments. A total of 4,500 new jobs have been created in this segment. The president's oral reply in parliament was his last session in the National Assembly for this quarter before the June holiday recess. He answered at least six questions with three from the ANC and one from both the DA the African Independent Congress and the ACDP. But the Speaker of Parliament, Balekambete, also allowed MPs to ask follow-up and supplementary questions. 
am Tebumoko in Johannesburg. A recent survey by research group Afrobarometer has revealed that the ANC remains a party of choice for most South Africans. This is despite evidence of growing support among some opposition parties. A survey conducted almost amongst 2,400 people shows that a majority of the population trust the ANC and that the ruling party would have retained its support if elections were to have been held last year. The study was released at the University of Johannesburg last night. Senior political journalist Amos Pajo reports. The study comes just three months before the elections with political parties engaged in a fierce contestation for votes. The survey suggests that opposition parties will face significant challenge in diminishing the ANC's electoral dominance in the upcoming local government elections, particularly because very few South Africans cite policy issues as the main difference between parties. Researchers Busisongkomo says opposition parties could however make inroads among large proportions of citizens who do not feel close to any political party. We found that most people still vote for, they intend to vote for the ANC if the election was held last year. But we see also an increase in people saying they're likely to vote for opposition parties and mostly to the benefit of the DA in most cities, especially Nelson Mandela Bay and Ekoholene uh, and Swane. But it doesn't mean that the ANC will have less, they'll probably have less votes. But just to push them below 50%. But that means they have to get into a coalition government in the municipality. So I think the bigger question then, if people vote the way they say that they would vote, would then the ANC actually get in bed with the EFF or the DA? The study also reveals a loss of trust in state institutions such as the Independent Electoral Commission, the police service and the courts over the past four years. Trust in the South African Revenue Services, the Office of the Public Protector and the National Prosecuting Authority remains stable. Researcher Anyway Chingwete says President Jacob Zuma has also suffered some credibility losses. And so what picture do we have um, in terms of trust in the president, but regionally? So because we asked this question in all 36 countries, but just during in just uh, Southern Africa for all the 11 uh, presidents. So the question refers to trust in the president or trust in, uh, uh, in prime minister for countries where we don't have, we, we actually have uh, prime ministers. Our findings shows that um, uh, President Zuma the second least trusted president regionally, only trusted by 34%. And it's really said, um, sadly that uh, there's actually a difference, a significant difference of 21% um, trust as we compare to the average, the regional average which of 55%. The study, however, received mixed reactions from political analyst Stephen Friedman. To me, one of the tests of this election, one of the things I will be looking for in the election is precisely that. Uh, have we reached a stage uh, where those people who are ANC voters traditionally, who are saying six or seven months before the election that they're not going to vote for the ANC, if we are indeed reaching a stage where those people indeed do not vote for the ANC and vote for somebody else, then that is a major shift in the way in which uh, voters uh, tend to, to approach their choices in this country. And it would indicate for the first time since we became a democracy in 1994, uh, that at least in the medium to longer term, the ANC's hold over the electorate might be in serious trouble. But that we have to see on election day. The researchers say while recent developments relating to corruption charges against President Jacob Zuma and the Constitutional Court judgment in the Ngadla Saka have sparked public debates, this does not render the findings of the study irrelevant as most people are concerned about the economy that is not generating jobs and the education system. I'm Amos Power in Johannesburg. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. 
If you have friends and family in the United States of America who enjoy staying in touch with news from home, tell them they can call 605-475-1711 and listen to Channel Africa from any mobile phone. The best part is there is no extra cost for the call when it originates from the U.S. So tell your friends and family in the U.S. to listen to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The right for women and girls to make their own choices about planning a family is fundamental to sustainable development. As according to the chief of the UN Population Fund, Babatunde Osotimehin was speaking from Copenhagen where he's been attending the Women Deliver Conference, the first major development gathering on maternal, sexual and reproductive health since world leaders endorsed the Sustainable Development Goals or SDGs. The conference is looking at how to implement the goals so they benefit the largest number of women and girls. When you look at the 17 goals, the 169 targets and the 300 and plus indicators that have come forth. It is about people, and people must be the center of development. And you cannot have sustainable development without people and empowering them and without giving them the knowledge and access to being able to look after themselves. And in any community, women and girls actually form the core of development. What empowers women and girls, what makes them tick, what gives them all they need to be who they are, is the ability to make choices about their fertility, to decide when they want children, how many they want. For girls, to be able to go to school, stay in school, and reach full potential. For women, to be able to grow a business, make money, and then become prosperous within their families so that they can actually live a good quality life. Do you believe that family planning is absolutely fundamental to sustainable development? Totally. There is a journal on foreign policy that actually looks at the various interventions that we can invest in that make sense. And they came up to say the most cost-effective human development intervention is family planning. Now, you're emphasizing that family planning and more precisely contraception is not about averting pregnancy. Why is that? It's about women's ability to take charge of their lives and their bodies. That's what it is. So it is not about them not getting pregnant. It's about them deciding when and if they want to get pregnant. Women, to be able to say, listen, given what I have with my family, we can only afford to have one child or two or three, whatever the number, because of our circumstances. Because we know the cost of of feeding, the cost of education, the cost of health, and the cost of looking after a child. But still, many patriarchal societies don't want women to have that choice. That's why we must engage men. That's why we must engage boys. So if you insist that your wife or your girlfriend or whatever should have children, when in point of fact, you don't have the resources to look after them. It's pointless. So it's in the interest of men and boys and patriarchs, community leaders and gatekeepers to understand that society has to have an ability to have those children which society can look after and can afford to have. The organisers of the conference are including a session called The Elephant in the Room, What About Abortion? What do you think about a frank discussion on the abortion issue? We at UNFPA, the position we, we hold, and I think it's the best position, is to say in countries where abortion is legal, it should be safe. In countries where it is not legal, we should have compassionate post-abortion care. Do you think it should be legal? That's left to national authorities to decide. That's not for UNFPA to say. That was Babatunde Osotimehin, chief of the UN Population Fund, speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Dickinson. 
The Japanese government has pledged to help feed millions of Zimbabweans who face critical food shortages due to the El Nino-induced drought that has affected the southern African region. This was revealed by the Japanese ambassador to Zimbabwe, Yoshi Hiraishi, in Harare after meeting with the Minister of Labor and Social Welfare, Priska Mufumira. Simon Machema reports from Harare. At a time when the United Nations donor agencies are complaining of donor fatigue affecting the food program in Zimbabwe, Japan is pledged to assist with an undisclosed amount of food aid. Perennially, Zimbabwe is faced with an acute food shortage affecting nearly 1.5 million people, but the figure doubled this year due to the El Nino-induced drought affecting the entire region. The country experienced extreme weather conditions resulting in poor rains and extreme hot temperatures. Rarely does the country receive food aid from countries such as Japan, but this year's hunger has called on even small countries to come to Zimbabwe's aid. The pledge by the Japanese ambassador to Zimbabwe comes barely a day after Equatorial Guinea had donated cassava and bananas for the starving locals. Yoshi Tendai Hiraishi, Japanese ambassador to Zimbabwe, made the revelations during the Kete's call to the Labor and Social Welfare Minister. I think uh, Japan will be, I hope that uh, Japan will be among those well wishes uh, in this regard. My government, I believe, is now considering uh, what they could do uh, to Zimbabwe uh, in uh, coping with the drought issue. I hope um, we'll hear some positive news from Japan in the near future. Meanwhile, the Zimbabwean minister, Priska Mfumira, explained why her country was now receiving aid from countries such as Japan. As you are aware, the ministry is heavily involved in the food mitigation program uh, caused by the El Nino phenomenon and when His Excellency visited uh, Japan earlier this year, some of the issues discussed included the capacity building and also the issue of drought mitigation. And we are saying irrigation is another way of managing our droughts. And Japan has been involved in projects. There's a big project in Manikaland. And also they've been involved in drilling boreholes in drought-stricken areas a lot of it focusing on areas such as Binga, and this is part of drought mitigation. So we've just been comparing notes and seeing how we can further consolidate the collaboration between Japan and Zimbabwe. Minister Mfumira said President Robert Mugabe declared a drought a national disaster calling for other countries to come with aid. I think we are all aware that we have had a, a drought uh, which is worse this current year. His Excellency, the President, declared a national disaster in, on February 3. And by declaring a national disaster, it opens the doors for any well-wishers who want to contribute. It could be individuals, it could be governments, it could be other uh, development partners. And we have friends. When you have a friend, when you are in need, your friends can come to assist. On one hand, Mupumira explained why her country received cassava and bananas from Equatorial Guinea, whose leader, Theodore Obiang Ngue Mambasong, is a close ally to 92-year-old President Mugabe. In 2004, Basong's rule from 1979 nearly came to an end until Zimbabwean official blogged an alleged group of missionaries from carrying out a coup. From then onwards, the two leaders became so close that West African country decided to donate food last Sunday. Minister Mfumira said, Equatorial Guinea, they have donated some foodstuffs. We haven't gotten the whole assignment. What came yesterday was just the start of some of the uh, products which have come. In the case of yesterday, we received some uh, food items, including cooking oil, rice, salt, tinned food, fish, tinned chicken, 
processed chicken and we are expecting more consignments to come. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchema. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.31 and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. In the headlines, Chadian officials say they've opened an investigation into the disappearance of more than 20 soldiers in the days before and after the April 10 presidential election. The United States has condemned the excessive use of force by Kenya Security Services during a demonstration by opponents of the Electoral Oversight Body. And the South African National Defence Force has been lauded for its response to allegations of sexual abuse against its members serving as UN peacekeepers. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. The International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies fears that the number of starving people in southern Africa due to the drought may rise from 31.6 million to 49 million people by the end of this year. Swaziland, Lesotho, Malawi and Zimbabwe have all declared a state of emergency. The Federation has also expressed concerns that armed conflicts such as the one in Syria may overshadow African drought at the World Humanitarian summit in Turkey next week. Horisane Sitole has more. The current El Nino in South Africa and neighboring countries has seen rivers drying up, livestock dying and rain not falling at the time that is expected. This could be attributed to climate change. The International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies has set aside 1.7 billion rand to support national Red Cross societies to respond to the drought. The Federation Secretary General El Haj Asai in situations you know where there is absolutely no food and before you can start talking about the longer term then you have to provide the food of course but that's not the end in itself we are not going to buy food and then bring in trucks we have what we call cash transfer scheme where we identify those vulnerable communities you know to give an assessment and provide them with resources at a certain level per month and they will go and then buy the food. So that is more dignified for people to go and choose, you know, what they really need. And then they can also have a variety of choices. He says some of the major issues that they are going to look at is adaptation, water harvesting education, and also to introduce more drought-resistant crops to communities as an alternative to maize. They're looking at diversifying also the agricultural products. So this heavy dependence on maize meal, which is really uh, striking in places like in Malawi and in Zambia. There are efforts to introduce other varieties, you know, as well. They may be more resistant, you know, to drought and also be more nutritious, you know, at the same time. The drought relief program falls under the One Billion Coalition for Resilience. Sai says his biggest fear 
is armed conflicts taking the center stage at the World Humanitarian Summit to be held in Turkey next week. Today, if you open the news, the headlines are not about this crisis we're talking about. The reason why we are here and make sure that it makes it you know, to the headline because you know, 34 million people affected, that is something extremely important. It is also an empiric observation that conflicts, armed conflicts, mm-hmm. often are given you know, more profile. And it's not about you know, Syria against another country, it's about the nature of the type of uh, conflict. The International Humanitarian Aid Organization was accompanied by UNICEF to visit some of the region's hard-hit countries. UNICEF's El Nino senior advisor, Shadra Komal, says he hopes leaders of the world would handle all crises equally. It's really not a competition between um, the Syria and Southern Africa or any other crisis. It's about making sure that all are given due attention. And I recall five years ago when we were dealing with the Horn of Africa crisis, it's almost a similar situation where by the time there was enough attention being addressed, uh, given to the crisis, we had children who were severely malnourished. We had the pictures which we should not be seeing in, in, in the world now, the world which now has got enough resources to protect children. That was El Haj Asay, Secretary General of the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, ending that report by Horisani Sitole in Johannesburg. A 70% drop in oil revenue in Nigeria has hit the West African country quite hard. That's according to Finance Minister Kimi Adeunsun speaking on the margins of the spring meetings of the International Monetary Fund and World Bank. Odiosun said that the government needed to diversify its revenue base by ensuring improved collection of tax, customs and non-oil revenues. The oil revenue drop and it is a fairly significant drop um, of about 60 to 70 percent in price over the last 18 months or so has hit us quite hard. We are actually only 13 percent oil in terms of GDP but in terms of government revenue it's 70 percent so there's a disproportionate reliance for government revenue on oil and so of course it's hit us fairly hard but it's come also at a time when there's been political change in Nigeria Uh, moving for the first time from one political party dispensation to another. And the new party has a very different economic approach. So there's the changes that are caused by the oil price and there are changes caused by policy differences in the new government. And we're, we're adjusting. I guess like everybody else, we're taking some tough measures to adjust to the new reality. And everyone's telling you to, you know, diversify the economy, and it seems like an obvious solution. But uh, how feasible do you think that is, uh, given non-oil revenues right now are very low, right, below 5%? I think the issue is around revenue collection, because actually the economy is diversified. If, you know, 13% is oil, 87% is a combination of services, agriculture, real estate. So it's actually a diversified economy. What's not diversified is the revenue base. And so what we're doing is trying to ensure that that other 87% of our GDP contributes to government revenue to make a more resilient revenue base for the government. And that's improvement in tax collection, improvement in customs collections, improvement in non-oil revenues, uh, which is where we're making our greatest inroads, um, everything from visa fees and passport fees and blocking those leakages of revenue to ensure that we're not as exposed to the oil price as we have been in recent months. And uh, another message that you're hearing uh, particularly from the IMF, is is about exchange rates, you know, floating exchange rates. What is the concern there? Well, I can't speak from the IMF, but I can speak for Nigeria. And as I said, we, we are in a transition period. We are in a, a season of flux, and we're taking very deliberate policy steps to reset the economy. And that's fiscal, that's monetary, that's industrial, that's a whole range of policies. And foreign exchange is just one of those. So I'm not holding a brief for the Central Bank of Nigeria. They're fully independent. They don't report to me. But uh, the Monetary Policy Committee, I know, are looking at it. And I'm sure it's something that in due season will will be adjusted. They have said that the measures they have taken are temporary. I'm sure within a reasonable period of time, we'll get an idea of how temporary and what the, the new policies will be. But I would say that in terms of the wider economy, the foreign exchange issue is not the only problem that Nigeria's economy is facing. And we need to face all the problems. Problems, um, to have a, a robust solution to position Nigeria for future growth. Hmm. So other problems include security, and there's well parts of the country that have 
experienced insecurity for quite some time due to Boko Haram. Do you think that there's a danger that this loss of revenues from oil could further destabilize these regions? And, and what would be the uh, economic impact of that? I think that, indeed, the part of the cause of, of some of that insecurity is economic. Um, we have a very young population. We have about 63% under the age of 25. We are not growing or were not growing in a way that was inclusive. And so I think when people don't have a hope and people can't see a way, a future, you become very susceptible to fundamentalist or extremist ideologies. And, and that's not exclusive to Nigeria. I think that's something in a range of countries. So we see that the progress and significant progress has been made by this administration in the area of, of security. And now we're getting into a period where we need to talk about restoration and rebuilding. And that rebuilding is not just rebuilding destroyed infrastructure and destroyed families because we've got millions of internally displaced people, but we've got to restore those economies and that's part of the agenda of this administration to make sure that we have a growth that is diversified a growth that is inclusive that carries everybody along so how do you see uh, the future of, of uh, these economies as many economies in sub-saharan africa are suffering i mean people talk about the demographics that could potentially present a, an opportunity do you see something that could help turn things around in the longer term mm. I, I think that uh, the one thing we've learned from you know the commodity booms and the flow of, of funds low interest rates and money flowing in is actually what grows economy sustainably is painstaking disciplined and deliberate incremental improvements in government and I think that's the lesson that everybody's learned that we don't want the booms because then we get the busts we just want to grow sustainably steadily and predictably and I think that's the sort of growth that Africa needs considering its population and I think the other very interesting thing is that every finance minister that I'm speaking to particularly the African finance ministers everybody is trying to get a solution that fits them and, and I think that's very important so, because you can't compare a Nigeria with 170 million people to a Rwanda or to a Kenya. They're very different. And I think the solutions, therefore, are going to be very diverse. So I think we're going to be seeing a very diverse recovery in, in Africa. That's Kimi Adiosun, a Nigerian finance minister, speaking to UN Radio's Bruce Edwards. According to the United Nations, mayors from different parts of the world will help set a new global strategy around urbanization for the next two decades. Half of the global population currently lives in urban areas, but the numbers are expected to peak at 70 percent by 2050. For the first time, city officials met with member states to negotiate a new urban agenda. Justin Sambira has the details. The UN predicts that by 2050, 70% of the world's populations will live in cities. However, the scale and pace of urbanization, especially in Asia and Africa, is happening faster than expected. Local and regional governments are on the front line of dealing with the daily challenges of urban and territorial development. Here's Juan Close, the Secretary General of Habitat 3. Urban areas present their own challenges, their own characteristics, their own complexity because it's about a lot of people living together in a concise uh, space, sharing services, sharing uh, many things, uh, expressing their own culture, creating their uh, own economic activities, and that it's uh, framing the human society in a great manner, and it's going to be this very relevant scenario in the forthcoming uh, years. Informal hearings are taking place at the UN in New York ahead of Habitat 3, also known as the UN Conference on Housing and Sustainable Development. Quito, the capital city of Ecuador, will host a major global summit in October where world leaders, mayors, academics, urbanists and activists will sign off on a new urban agenda. The mayor of Quito, Mauricio Rodas, says he and his counterparts are key players in the urbanization process. We are the ones that have to deal with local policies to address uh, the main concerns of our population. In that regard, I think that it is not only important to include the voice of mayors and local governments in the new urban agenda, but also to design specific mechanisms through which local governments will play a role in the global table in order to execute the new urban agenda in a proper manner. 
One of the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, is to make cities inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable. Having been hit by a massive earthquake in April, Ecuador knows something about resilience, its Minister of Housing and Urban Development said. Almost 700 lives were lost and 8,000 houses were destroyed, and some cities were devastated, according to Maria Duarte. Even though we are affected, we have the way of responding. We have programs of housing to give all the people who lose their houses new ones. We have lines of credit. We have uh, built all the roads. They are uh, in a very good state. We have um, a bridge, a very one-kilometer-long bridge, that even the foreigner designers are very amazed it supported are almost eight point richer scale earthquake. That's what we call resiliency. A campaign has been launched by local government, civil society, and the urban community to call on the international community to listen to cities and territories in the negotiations on the new urban agenda. Jocelyn Sambira, United Nations. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoko. And I'm Tabiso Lohoko. South Africa's government says American beef, poultry and chicken is already trading in the local market. In March this year, Pretoria finalized its agreement with Agoa over the importation of beef and poultry products into the local market. The country's Minister of Trade and Industry, Rob Davies. All the procedures, all the regulatory processes are in place. There is a, a labeling requirement, so if you walk into a supermarket and you see it, you should see it there somewhere. Uh, it says product of the United States, but it may also go to um, KFC or Nando's or something like that. South Africa's Finance Minister Pravin Gordon has asked for the Treasury to be protected to help deliver economic growth. He was reacting to reports that he could be arrested over a so-called spy unit while he was a SARS commissioner. A faction in government opposed to Gordon has been accused of wanting to hijack the Treasury. Nigeria's oil production has fallen by almost 40% to 1.4 million barrels a day due to militant attacks on facilities in the Delta region. Oil Minister Emmanuel Ibe Kachikiwi's comments come amid a resurgence of militancy in the southern region, which produces most of the crude oil that Nigeria relies on for around 70% of national income. <clears throat> the Democratic Republic of Congo will seek between 250 U.S. dollars and 500 U.S. dollars in budgetary support from the World Bank this year, pending a review of its economy by the International Monetary Fund next month. Africa's leading copper producer has been hit hard by a fall in commodity prices since last year. This month, the government proposed a 22% reduction in the 2016 budget and cut its annual growth forecast to 6.6% from 9%. Kenya's Tattoo City has announced plans to construct 1,200 new units that are expected to accommodate about 4,100 residents. It was revealed yesterday that 30 acres would be developed by Lifestyle Properties beginning November 2016. The mixed-use urban development sits on 2,500 acres in total. The U.S. dollar trades at 15.59 in South Africa, 11.02 in Botswana, 10.04 in Zambia. 69 British pound 88 euro gold 1275 dollars platinum 1044 dollars an ounce brand crude 49 dollars 35 cents a barrel you are listening to channel africa
A sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. Several Moroccan athletes have been arrested on suspicion of doping following a complaint by the country's Athletics Federation. Spokesman Mohamed Al-Nouri said the arrest followed a complaint filed by the Federation President, Shakib Faleh Abid, in April, but said the exact number of athletes involved was not known. Moroccan media reported on Tuesday that a Moroccan athlete living in Italy had been arrested for providing doping products to other athletes. The Daily al Bar claimed eight people have been taken into custody in the affair, including one member of the military. The spokesman said that the Moroccan Federation had previously made complaints um, to the police in 2007 and 2013, but that neither was not followed up. On to football news. South African Premiership side Mamelodi Sundowns will be looking to reach the group stages of the CAF Confederations Cup to avoid playing in the preliminary round next season and also to preserve so, uh, four spots allocated to South Africa in African competitions. Sundowns take on Madima Sporting Club in the Ghanaian city of Sakonda in, or rather on Wednesday night. A win, a draw or a loss by one goal margin will see coach Peter Musimani's side advance to the last eight of Africa. Africa's secondary club competition. Musimani wants to avoid preliminary round next season in the CAF Champions League. That's a very good thing. Eh? Pirates has given that space, has given us that opportunity. That's why they were seated in the Confederation Cup. They didn't play the, the, the preliminary rounds. So we need to go there. And it's not only for us. We need also to, to, to repay to the country what Pirates has done so that teams like this can play Champions League, so that teams like uh, Pumalanga I can go to the to the Confederation Cup even if they didn't win the net bank. So it must we Paris have done something good and I also want to contribute so that this this country must go longer in this tournament and they get more experience and, and we try but the program of the league must suit the teams. The Ghanaians showed a touch of class at times to score an away goal back in the first leg, but Musman is confident that they will come back victorious in West Africa. If we focus and concentrate, uh, we should be able to, to, to come out, you know. But you know what I like? This team plays. This team didn't come here to sit back. They play. They pass the ball. It's Ghanaian football. They play. Passing. They're not sitting back. So it will be an open game there. That will be nice. You know, so I think we can get one behind and, uh, and also score. I think we can score there. But you don't have to score as long as they don't score. On to rugby news, the junior Springboks team on Tuesday night defeated a determined Marty's outfit of 41-14 in a physical encounter at the Danny Craven Stadium in Stellenbosch. The match marked their second warm-up game in the lead-up to the World Rugby Under-20 Championships in Manchester, England, set from the 7th to the 25th of June. The team registered a 60-19 victory against the Xerox Golden Lions under 20 invitational side in Johannesburg last Friday in their first warm-up match. And while the result left junior Springbok coach Dawi Thurn satisfied, admitted that a series of knock-ons and forced passes at crucial times was disappointing. The coach, however, was pleased with the team's set pieces and their ability to string together phases on attack once they had found their rhythm. The team will travel to George on Thursday morning, where they will prepare for a clash against SWD in Oudsworen. On to tennis news, former world number one Caroline Wozniacki has pulled out of the French Open because of injury. The 25-year-old Dane has been struggling with an ankle problem and missed recent tournaments in Madrid and Rome, dropping to 34th in the world. The WTA also confirmed that she would miss the event in Roland Garros, which starts on Sunday. Belinda Bensink of Switzerland, the world number eight, has also withdrawn because of a back injury. The 19-year-old has had um, has had um, um, trouble with her back since March. She will be replaced in the main draw by Lauren Davies of the USA, which or rather who reached the second round at Roland Garros back in 2012. The draw for the tournament takes place on Friday. 
And finally in golf news, Tiger Woods' rusty form was on display on Monday as he took part in a charity event to raise money for wounded um, service um, service veterans. Rather, Woods met the media to discuss the Quicken Loans National Tournament and then hit a few balls alongside local golfers to raise money in a short for heroes event. Prior to the charity event, Woods held a brief news conference and was asked about his return to golf and his chances of passing Jack Nicholas's record of 18 major championships. Yeah, I think that his major championship record, I think it's still, certainly still attainable. Um, I got him on the regular wins already. But uh, the, 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 the major one, yeah, that's certainly up there. Sam's record, I'd like to get as well. Uh, there's certainly... I'm number two on, on, on both lists, so it'd be nice to end up at, at one on both lists. Uh, that's a long way away because that's going to take time to, to get to that point. But uh, hopefully that you know I can get out here and compete at that high level and maintain that, that level. I want, I want to play. Trust me, I want to. Now whether I can or do or this is a different story. And if I could tell you, I would. But I, I can't, not yet. Um, I'm, still, I'm still working. I'm still trying to get stronger. Um, and still need to try and recover. As I suppose you at the South, stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka. Recapping our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa lauded for its response to allegations of sexual abuse leveled against its soldiers, and Japan pledges to assist Zimbabwe feed millions of villagers facing food shortage. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Revelina Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band two southern africa is mashatini and the mahotela queens with a song titled gazette
morning and welcome to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, 